0: Welcome to teach me something—the podcast where I learn about something that interests me, and you get some cool trivia out of the deal. This week, we're going to change it up a little bit and coax Everett into doing a little more of the teaching, because one thing I am not knowledgeable about is the world of gaming. Um, I mean, don't get me wrong—I okay. have, back. yeah, I have a passing familiarity with gaming and some games and aspects of gaming, but I was never involved with World of Warcraft, which is the centerpiece of our topic in this episode. I keep saying this week, but since we're doing bi-week, I kind of have to not say that.
1: The center of this bi-week?
0: This, <laughs> this sounds terrible. Fortnite? For, oh,
1: there you go. That's, that's also yes, a game. Yes. See, that's all... That's, this that's Fortnite, like yeah. we're we'll be
0: talking about. You got it. Anyways, so you see, in 2005, World of Warcraft experienced a global pandemic, the likes of which had never been seen before, Digitally speaking, mm-hmm. um, this event caught the attention of scientists and researchers around the world, and the World of Warcraft pandemic turned out to be a valuable resource for epidemic modeling. Um, now, in case anyone listening has already stopped to wonder what World of Warcraft is, um, don't worry.
1: We'll get there. <laughs> we got you. We
0: gotcha. uh, we'll expand on it. Uh, I'm not going to leave you in the dark. We're going to explain it to everyone. Whether you've played it or not, if you've played it, you might find this first section rather basic, but uh, hang in there. Hang tight. Um, So, this time, I'm going to be the one to say to Everett, Everett, teach me something.
1: Okay, great. Where would you like me to start?
0: So... Hopefully you could fill us in a little bit about Warcraft. Like, you know, what is Warcraft? Of course. What, uh, what, just, yeah, start at the very beginning.
1: Well, that that's a good question, because first of all, you asked, what is Warcraft? And we do need to make a distinction. There is something called Warcraft and something different called World of Warcraft. Just so that no one gets too confused. See,
0: this is why you're doing this section and not me.
1: Yes. So, Warcraft was a game made by Blizzard in the mid '90s. I still was... call
0: everything Nintendo.
1: That's true. so. That, that was made Nintendo. by Nintendo peoples, just in a different company called All Blizzard.
0: Nintendo. Yeah. Uh,
1: Warcraft was what is considered to be a real-time strategy game, meaning you command uh, in in the original either a race of humans or a race of orcs. And you gather resources and build armies and you try to go very fast and defeat the enemy in scenarios. Or in multiplayer against other people.
0: Yeah, I've clearly never seen this game.
1: (laughs) Yeah. Uh, But there were three of them. It went from just humans and orcs to the humans made alliances with night elves and later ones and dwarves and that type of stuff. And the orcs made alliances with the taurine, which are like... Sauron. Not Sauron, yeah. Yeah. uh, So... That kind of set the backdrop for what World of Warcraft would be. Okay. Okay. It basically set up that there were these two warring factions, the Alliance and the Horde. The humans led the Alliance, basically, and the Horde were effectively led by the Orcs. Uh, But that that was a very popular game type. Um, What happened then was Blizzard decided to take the backdrop of Warcraft and make a... M-M-O-R-P-G. There's a lot of letters. I know that one. Good. What is that one?
0: Massively multiplayer online role-playing game.
1: That's right. So a role-playing game, uh, unlike a real-time strategy game, real-time strategy game, you make armies and, and battle en masse. In a role-playing game, you develop one character. You kind of sink all your time into one character and you level them up and guide their experience and choose what they learn and that type of thing. Uh, and the massively multiplayer online section of it meant that uh, World of Warcraft meant that you logged on, you had to play online, there was no offline, you'd log on and you'd always be playing with other people. Not necessarily with other people, but around other people at least. Um, and in World of Warcraft, you would choose to make a character and it could be either on the Alliance or on the Horde. For example, you could make like a, an Orc Shaman or you know, a human warrior or something like that. And you'd play as that character. You would level them up from level one. uh, Well, in in the time period that we're talking about here, World of Warcraft has gone through a lot of expansions. But at the time period, what we're talking about, the original vanilla World of Warcraft from level one to level 60. You'd play that character. Um, And it was heavily focused on you would have a lot of time when you play by yourself. But anytime you wanted to do more of a challenging thing was typically you'd play in groups of five and do what were called dungeons or ultimately at the higher levels you would do like raids or something like that with more people
0: right so that i mean okay that that's kind of like the gameplay side of it what was the what was the world like what was the
1: yeah so it's definitely fantasy Mm -hmm. based um and if you were playing on the horde you were uh playing as you know orcs or undead or tauren or these kinds of people and if you're playing on the alliance you're playing as humans or dwarves or night elves and you would literally run around the world as this one person Mm -hmm. you would accept quests slay monsters (laughs) do all those kinds of fun fantasy things learn spells and that type of stuff
0: yes um, what I'm getting at is the, the layout, the structure of the world. The actual the, world itself. The, the Got it. Cities, the cities. Like, like, tell me yeah. about the... So... Paint me a word picture. A
1: word picture, yeah. The landscape of word picture. So World of Warcraft uh, has its own fantasy lands. The world ends up being made up of two continents. And one continent, the... One on the east, the Eastern Kingdom, uh, is primarily an alliance continent. But on both continents, what you end up having is uh, multiple areas, almost like provinces, that you can travel through, um, each with their own kind of level or difficulty. Um, But not only that, but there's large populated cities all the way down through, you know, towns or townships or outposts all different sizes and and they would have different services within them within that the players would use like banks and merchants and uh primarily those things but a lot of stuff like that quest givers that type of thing so they'd be traveling in and out of these variously populated centers often and each populated center would be kind of denoted as either alliance or horde there would be um what are called non-player characters. They're just characters that look like you, but they're just computers there that would sell you things and stuff like that. Um, and they would be specifically an alliance or a horde character.
0: Right. Okay. So before I interrupt you to ask this question, you had been talking about playing together, getting kind of a group of people together. Yeah. Um, as one one thing you can do in the game. like. Play with other people. Yeah,
1: I mean, you could say it's one thing you could do, but it was almost like the objective. Um, It really focused on if you wanted to get the best gear, if you wanted to do the content that was the most exciting, um, then, I mean, you could go off and do, like, a quest on your own or go gather materials on your own or go fight things on your own, but that was fairly mundane. Enjoyable, but mundane. Um, The real challenge and real excitement came in, like, dungeons mm-hmm. which were you would get a group of five people and you would have to you know coordinate and work as a team to do scripted battles and and get better rewards and you know the the, the best gear you could and at pretty much any level that you're playing in the game because you would level up from level one to 60 uh there was dungeon content that you could do so so you were all throughout your gaming experience constantly making connections with people and learning to do dungeons and learning to work together as a team. Um, There's roles and stuff basically in the game, but uh, that type of content promoted that.
0: Right. Okay. That makes sense. So in this case, what we're talking about here, what, how did, how did this all start? What happened here?
1: Yeah. So the, the plague that is the world of Warcraft plague that's well known is actually, it's called the, Corrupted Blood Plague. And to understand that, we also have to understand that... um, We can make one more distinction in terms of what's a raid versus a dungeon. Okay. So as you're leveling up from 1 to 6, you're playing dungeons constantly. That's that's either you're playing by yourself, or you might be playing with up a group of 5 people to do a dungeon. Okay. Once you got to the highest level, level 60 they started to create content, which would be called end game content. Basically, it's like you'd kind of finished the game. You got all the way to level 60, but now here's the really, really, really hard stuff that's going to take a long time to do. And those were called raids. And those took either 10 or 20 people.
0: I see. I didn't know raids were only for...
1: Yeah, raids were fairly exclusive. And and, uh, not only that, but I would say a majority of the player base, especially in the original... World of Warcraft, which was uh, less handheld holding than the newer versions, not a high percentage of the of the player base actually did dungeons or did raids. Most would end up not maybe not leveling up all the way, or they'd get to the max level and start another character or something like mm-hmm. that. Uh, raiding was kind of reserved for almost you know the hardcore players. They were tough. You had to get either nine or nineteen more people. You had to coordinate. You had to learn the strategy. You had to learn the fights. You had to, and and the and the progression through the raids got harder and harder and harder and harder and harder.
0: And from what I remember of you playing, they took forever, and they always took twice as long as you said they were going to take.
1: Yep, that's right. So you know, especially in the original World of Warcraft, they you would usually form and join a guild, mm-hmm. so that you could have a group of people. To go raiding with, basically. Right. Um, and we're talking, the type of logistics would be, you know, you'd set out, okay, Wednesday evenings from 4pm to 10pm is going to be raid night and we're going to do 10-man raids. So. And then, you know, the, the diehards, the people who actually got to do like 20-man raids, like this one that led to the Corrupted Blood Plague, uh, probably meant that you were doing like four to five hours one day a week as a 10-man raid and then going and doing another day a week, doing another four or five hours to do 20-man content. Mm-hmm. Um, to experience that content and learn it and uh, beat it, basically. So, let's get to the raiding question, which was their first 20-man raid in World of Warcraft called Grub, And uh, like I suggested, with it needing 20 people, it took a high level of complexity and Dedication to play it. So not very many people got there.
0: Mm -hmm.
1: You had to have already done all the other raiding content to get gear good enough to even survive there. Okay. And the last boss in this raid was called Hakkar. Uh, Basically a a large red serpent with blue-green wings. Sounds cool. Yeah, it's pretty cool. I never got to do him at the time, but very cool. Probably good. Yeah, probably good. Um, And he was very tough. But the thing is that one of the moves that he would do, one of the spells he would cast basically against your group, is this debuff called Corrupted Blood. And for anybody who doesn't know what a debuff is or a buff, a buff is like a positive thing that's put temporarily onto a character, like get five health every two seconds, or every time I hit something, do more damage.
0: Right, so a debuff is... The opposite. D d that.
1: Yeah, debuff (laughs) being... Every two seconds, take Something ten damage. Yeah, yeah, exactly. So, um, one of the things that this boss would do is debuff uh, one or two people in the party at a time.
0: Okay.
1: And it was and the debuff was called corrupted blood. Mm-hmm. And what it would do is it would do two hundred and fifty to three hundred damage every two seconds to a player for four to eight seconds. So you know, it would do approximately a thousand to two thousand damage to okay. the character uh-huh. for people who were able to get to that raid to get to that boss they'd probably have three or four thousand health so they could survive and you'd have healers in the party and you know they'd help keep people alive however just as a comparison somebody who's just starting the game would have maybe 20 health or 30 health and maybe somebody who hits level 60 might have a thousand health and so this kind of debuff had the you know potential to kill somebody who didn't have enough health right away now the other aspect of this corrupted blood debuff was it would spread to anybody within a a small radius of the character who got it
0: is that like I've never really seen that type of um, dynamic I guess in other spells in other games
1: so in World of Warcraft, um, that so that's that pretty common. common that World that Warcraft. you can,
0: like, spread boss and debuff? Or, I guess, debuff? No, it,
1: it depended. Uh, but that was part of, like, how content worked. Like, one boss wouldn't have any sort of effect like that. You'd have to learn a mechanic to beat them. This boss, one of the mechanics was he would cast this debuff and everybody would have to spread out. Or be spread out in order to limit the spread of this debuff in order to, to beat it, because otherwise it'd do too much damage to your group. Right,
0: but it wasn't common. No, so it wasn't, no, it wasn't a, common. That a new mechanic, or just I don't know if it was necessarily mechanic?
1: new. It was just... Um, I don't think it was even particularly new in World of Warcraft. It just happened to be that this one was a very high-level debuff, let's call mm-hmm. it. Um, and it spread quickly, because it was meant to like wipe out the raid if you didn't do it properly, or if you didn't account for it properly. And basically... It would either get removed from you when you died or it ran out, and if you were to try to leave the raid, for example, the coding in the game would remove it from you. So technically it should stay only in the raid.
0: So what went wrong? Uh, In my estimation, any time that anything goes wrong with um, computers, um, it's a a glitch, because that's the only word I know. So was it it a glitch, Everett?
1: I wouldn't say it was a glitch. What went oh, wrong with no. a glitch? I would say it was <laughs> now a... Now we're outside
0: of my comfort zone. A,
1: a coding oversight, let's say. So one thing we have to introduce now is that there's actually two classes or two, you know, class, characters you can be within World yeah, of Warcraft. you said
0: orcs and humans.
1: Well, those are the races. <laughs> there's, you, you choose your race and your class when you play the game. So two of the classes were Hunter and Warlock. Oh, I see. In hunter, you would uh, befriend an animal that would fight with you,
0: as is typical of characters named hunters.
1: Th- that's right. Yeah, um, and the warlock would summon one of a set number of like ethereal, ghost type characters that would fight with them. All right. But the point is, they had these what we would call summoned characters that would fight with them.
0: Pets. Pets. Yeah? Yeah? Pets. Familiars?
1: Familiars. Yeah, exactly. They'd have these pets. Okay. And if that pet was... Um, well, A, these pets could be summoned or, or desummoned at any time. Okay. So you could choose to summon it and have it go out and fight, and then call it back and desummon it. It would, like, go away.
0: Yeah.
1: Uh, the pets could also get the Corrupted Blood debuff. And if the pet was alive when you exited the raid, the code would remove the debuff from them.
0: Mhm. If they were, like... Out.
1: If they were summoned.
0: Out of their Pokeball.
1: If they were out of their Pokeball, Walking that's right. with you. Yeah. However...
0: If you put them back in their Pokeball.
1: If you de them, they kept whatever buffs or debuffs were on them.
0: Just like a Pokemon.
1: Uh, yes. And when you summoned them next, it would still have those debuffs and buffs.
0: Okay.
1: So that was where the code oversight was. I'm
0: understanding this through my analogy to Pokemon.
1: That's right. So
0: <laughs>
1: this plague exited the raid... By having some hunters or warlocks, probably inadvertently at first, have a pet that got the debuff, and then they desummoned them, put them back in the Pokeball, effectively okay. saving the the corrupted blood debuff on that on that pet. Yeah. And then when they got back to a populated area,
0: uh-huh. they
1: summoned their pet again, and now the corrupted blood was out in the wild because then they were in let's say like a big populated central city Mm -hmm. is spread like wildfire
0: okay alright so and then what so it starts to spread and then what
1: well a few things one uh, technically it acted so fast and did so much damage that very few people would have survived it at all. Only the most elite of players would survive it.
0: Level 60.
1: Level 60 and geared up through raids. Like, ah. your gear made you stronger. Ah, okay. So, even a level 60 character would probably get wiped out very quick if that if that character wasn't already raided and had the right gear. okay. Right, so, a vast majority of the population would just get wiped out right away. Um, and so, if that's the case, if the the plague spread quickly in a city. Technically, it should just wiped everybody out and then it'd be like a reset. No, right. You wouldn't really have a chance to keep right. going. Right, yeah. But the problem was, those NPCs I told you about, the merchants, the quest givers, the bankers, all that to the stuff, they could receive the debuff, but they would never die from it. So, they became permanent spreaders of the debuff. Meaning that... Effectively, especially all the major cities, became permanent death zones where, if you entered them, you and got too close to any character, you got the corrupted blood, and unless you were one of the elite players, would pretty much instantly die within four to eight
0: seconds. So, were you playing World of Warcraft in two thousand five?
1: No, I was not at that time.
0: Were you like friends with people that were playing in 2005? Do you remember this in? In real life,
1: no, I don't. I don't remember it when it was happening. Mm. But even when I was playing in like two thousand six, two thousand seven, like when I think that was about when I started, uh, I was definitely kind of part of the mythology or the mythos. It was the event right. that people remembered and talked about. Great right.
0: one for the history books. Yeah. So how did they fix it then? What did what did uh, Blizzard have to do? Well. I'm guessing there was no digital vaccine and vaccine passports. And...
1: No, they 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 did a few things. One, they tried to impose like voluntary quarantines. Oh
0: yeah, doesn't work well, does it?
1: It did not work. Many players didn't take it seriously. Shock. They they tried to do this thing. they were like, nobody entered the cities for this period of time. We'll remove the debuff from NPCs and you know just whatever. But at that point, people didn't care. They just went back in and reinfected the NPCs. So. Uh-huh. They, be- they continued to be hotbeds of the disease, basically. Right. And it meant that what was once thriving centers of the game, where people had to go to basically sell their stuff and get quests and complete quest lines and progress and stuff like that, became an area they couldn't go to.
0: Mm-hmm.
1: So uh, some people basically turned off the game and stopped playing for a while. Some people went and did content out in areas that weren't populated. Um, some people decided that they wanted to just spread the disease as much as possible and you know, spread it as far as they could. Uh, it was kind of a interesting catastrophe.
0: Uh, yeah, um, it really obviously caught my attention, which is why we're doing this episode. Um, I thought it was... Cool in the fact that it's pretty unique. Um, there's not much else that we can compare this to. Like, there are... I read about some epidemics in games like Sims and other things, but um, the, the global aspect in, in World of Warcraft, um, nothing like that has happened before. Yeah. Um, or since, as far as I can tell.
1: Well, and, and with the massively multiplayer, the MMO part of it, where people are always logging on it's it's right. a thriving economy you of people be walking like, on to yeah. play it
0: it's not like sims where you can play by yourself by yourself um so i figure unless you have anything else you want to explain to us about warcraft that now it's my turn to kind of uh dive in here
1: absolutely take it away
0: okay so um i would talk about why this kind of odd digital pandemic caught the attention of all the researchers So epidemiologist Dr. Nina Pfefferman was a World of Warcraft player at the time of the incident, um, as well as her colleague, Dr. Eric Lofgren. So her and her colleague published a paper in 2007 titled The Untapped Potential of Virtual Game Worlds to Shed Light on Real World Pandemics. Um, And they were discussing the reasons why this world and this event can be a great parallel to real life. Um, So first, World of Warcraft itself was a really excellent model for a lot of types of human behavior because it had a kind of unique demographic, um, at least at the time of Corrupted Blood. Um, It wasn't just your stereotypical gamer. There were, you know, mothers and soldiers and doctors and politicians and Mm -hmm. scholars, and it wasn't, you know, what you expect, Um, like the typical stereotypical nerd in his mom's basement. Yelling for more Hot Pockets. Um, right. It It was a lot of... A, a wide range of people, which always produces the best results in studies, as we know. Um, and secondly, corrupted blood was a temporary condition. Yeah. But you could spread it to other players by just standing close to them. And those two factors really strongly mimic a human virus. Uh, third, the pets that Everett just talked about. So in the game, the pets who are infected and could affect others, that reflects the real life fact that livestock and to some extent wildlife can act as a disease reservoir um, that, you know, keeps certain viruses and bacteria alive um, and mutating even, which doesn't happen in this game. But like, that's that's how animals right. act in our real life environment. I mean, it's what makes some diseases all but impossible to eradicate, like smallpox because don't go near any armadillos. You don't want smallpox. Or no, sorry, that's leprosy. You don't want leprosy. We can't get of leprosy because armadillos and some other animals. It's just uh it's an odd conundrum to have, but it mimics real life.
1: Right.
0: Um it's like ducks and chickens passing around the avian flu and it jumps from humans to birds to back like back to humans. Um the fact that there was a very apparently a very steep penalty in the game for losing your pet, your animal. It wasn't like you could just respawn them and everything was fine. So because there was pressure that was kind of prohibitively large cost for a lot of people, um, they tried to hold on to their animals by putting them away when they were sick.
1: Mm-hmm. Instead
0: of, you know... And, and the researchers have drawn parallels between... That and the motivation, let's say, a farmer has for not slaughtering his whole herd when there's a disease outbreak. Um, there's an investment of time and money that people don't want. So there was some real-life motivation behind the you know animal scenario here. Um, fourth, the teleportation in World of Warcraft. So yeah. Everett didn't entirely touch on this, but there's like a fast-traveling system where you can just warp.
1: One way. Know. Yeah. You, you had an item... Uh that you could attune to a major city. Right. And then you could use that item once every, I think it was half an hour or 60 minutes, and you could warp directly to that city from anywhere you were.
0: Right. So you can directly warp to a major city. Correct. Which mimics the travel of contagious disease-like carriers over long distances. That's been the absolute hallmark of many disease outbreaks in the past. Like from, you know, the Mongol horde carrying the bubonic plague or... Cholera, you know, throughout Europe in the mid-19th century, but more specifically to our time, the origin of the spread of diseases like HIV and SARS through air travel is um, very closely mimicked by being able to teleport to major hubs. Right. Um, fifth, as Everett mentioned, lower-level player populations in particular were devastated by this plague. Um, and then to the game's powerful players... This disease is no more threatening than, say, the common cold in a healthy adult. So we can really see parallels here between less powerful characters who were never intended to come in contact with this, who died very quickly. Um, so like a high-level player, we could say, was someone with a healthy functioning immune system. And a low-level player could be compared to a someone with a weaker defense. We we're talking, you know susceptible people, children, elderly, immunocompromised. Um, so, so these are all some of really good reasons why this could be a, an actual model for a pandemic, they thought in 2007 when they wrote this paper. <laughs> um, and through this incident, one of the things they mention is, is this kind of should have been the end of it with a bunch of people all dying off. Mm -hmm. The weak people dying off that were susceptible, the strong immune, basically, ones were left. You know, that eventually enough of the low-level people should have died off that, you know, and they're leaving the game to to wait it out. Like, it it should have kind of ran its course. The density should have dropped to such a point that it wasn't spreading anymore. Um, But then comes those non-player characters you were talking about, um, who couldn't die due to their coating, and would also catch the effect and if they could have died then they would have eliminated themselves from spreading correct or if they got very sick and this is a real life thing now if people get very sick and they have to be in their house and they don't go out they're not seeing people um so those things you know in real life they these people would have quarantined but we can compare them very clearly to uh asymptomatic carrier of a disease. So the NPCs were the typhoid Marys of this situation, or a lot of diseases have, you know, we've seen it again with SARS-CoV-2, like there's, there's asymptomatic carriers that are spreading the disease with no impact on themselves. Correct. Um, and that really speeds up progression. Um, so, you know, for all those reasons, the researchers found that it's actually maybe a really accurate model to study real life situations is a game like World of Warcraft. Um, After all, it would be kind of unethical, or, you know, extremely unethical, to just release an infectious disease in real life in order to study what people do. Um, So this is kind of a... Maybe this is our next best thing uh, scenario. The problem... We do use computer modeling, and the problem with that is, of course, always human behaviors. Right. So when you use computer modeling for like, virtual simulated type things, you're relying on whatever algorithm and mathematical mm, statements you can try to come up with that's going to explain human behavior. You're, you're really limited by what you've thought of um, and what you've programmed into it. And in a case like this, you have just like this huge plethora of humans making their own choices. Uh, we can't really mimic that. So, I mean, the, doc- the doctor that wrote this paper, doc- primary writer, Dr. Nina Pfefferman, um, you know, is very, very clear about this. You know, human behavior is one of the biggest impacts that we have on spreading disease. I mean, everyone understands that if we had all stayed completely isolated for two weeks to three weeks once COVID started, we could have completely eradicated from the planet. But that's not possible. It's not realistic. It's not
1: really within the scope of human behavior, yeah.
0: Yes. Um, So, you know, a quote, she said that, you know, a lot of her work since then has been trying to build models of the social construction of, like, risk perception and how people perceive threats and how different personalities of people perceive threats differently. All this stuff she's been able to study through, through this World of Warcraft pandemic. And she, her experience playing within the game, she feels kind of gave her um, an understanding of how much of this behavior is common, how much of this, like, just that type of, that type of thing. Um, But obviously there was some criticisms of this. Like, there are a lot of people saying, like, the first and biggest thing people immediately critiqued the paper for was their feeling that, This is a virtual world, so there's no way that people will act the same way in real life as they would act in the game. The stakes are different, consequences are different. There's no way that this lines up. Like these are games where you're encouraged to behave in a way you never would offline. That's kind of what people perceive. That's what people thought. It made sense, right? It's intuitive until you play. It's it's intuitive, (laughs) so. But in the paper, the researchers are pointing out that in the game, there is a huge diversity of response from players to this threat of infection, similar to real life. Some acted selflessly. They kind of became the frontline workers. They revived people, whatever they resurrected or whatever the word. I yep. don't even know. Yep. Um, so they like healed people, even though that put themselves at risk. Um, others fled the infected cities um, and hid out in the countryside to save themselves. Um And still others engage in a behavior called griefing. Mm -hmm. This is the biggest criticism people have with this model had. (laughs) I think it's been a little bit put to rest, but that all this griefing behavior would never be something people would do in real life. That's horrible. People would never do that. This is only something that they would do in a non-consequence virtual world. So I'm going to hand it over again for a second to you, Everett. Could you kind of enlighten us on what griefing is? I think, uh, I think trolling, to me, was the best.
1: Yeah, trolling's similar, but griefing has a a pretty specific vector, especially in World of Warcraft. Um, Again, if we go back to that alliance versus horde perspective, griefing has always been somebody who's more powerful or just higher level would go to, if you're on the horde side, you'd go to a lower level alliance area and start killing all the characters and just killing all the NPCs, killing all the characters, and just waiting there for them to respawn and killing them again, waiting for them to respawn and killing them again. Basically making it so they couldn't play the game. They would be in a loop of not being able to escape you griefing them.
0: That's so mean.
1: It is, yeah. But definitely part of the game. Uh, The griefing that happened with this plague, though, wasn't just like Horde versus Alliance or Alliance versus Horde. It became everybody versus everybody. So the griefing became, you know, People would uh, get the debuff on their pet and de on their pet, and they'd go find pockets of people and purposely kill them by summoning their pet, basically. Uh, lions or horde or whoever they were. Uh, it was definitely something that happened with more prevalence right. during the plague.
0: So, specifically, people are quoting this behavior and saying, this would never happen. People are not going to go get people sick on purpose who do you think, who do you think people are, what do you think people are capable of here, the audacity, no, they were, they were uh, offended, the very idea that this is a, this is reflective of real life whatsoever, so, um, at the start, the very start, we're talking March 2020 of the COVID pandemic in the West here, um, one of the co-authors, Dr. Eric Lofgren, has this to say, so I quote here, To pull it back to a corrupted blood analogy and something I've been thinking about, one of the critiques critiques we got from a lot of people, both gamers and scientists, was over the idea of griefing. How griefing isn't really analogous to something that takes place in the real world, people aren't intentionally getting people sick, and they might not be intentionally getting people sick, but willfully ignoring your potential to get people sick is pretty close to that. You start to see people like, oh, this isn't a big deal. I'm not going to change my behavior. I'm going to go to a concert and then go to see my elderly grandma anyways. Maybe don't do that. That's a big takeaway. Epidemics are a social problem. Minimizing the seriousness of something is sort of real world griefing. So that's March 2020. And uh, I, think his, I think all of us, I don't need to reiterate here. I think we know that it's gone from him saying oh, just people ignoring the potential to get other people sick is griefing. To the fact that, pe- no, people are intentionally trying to get other people sick. People are acting in a way that um, I think we would have thought counterintuitive before this happened. And yeah. it's uh, funny is definitely not the right word. But it's interesting how accurate some of these, um I'm trying behaviors. to say, fringe behaviors yeah. Are to sometimes larger than fringe populations, and how that really became a reality, and they were really proven right because mm-hmm. because yes, this is something that's going to happen. Oddly enough, <laughs> yeah.
1: well, I suspect in World of Warcraft that maybe the height of or the percentage of of players that were griefing versus you know kind of the world real world you know analog of it might have been higher. But one of the things that i think people didn't understand in saying that you know that didn't have an or uh an analogy in the real world was that they didn't see how world of warcraft really is a game based on oftentimes like it's a social game where you want to have standing with other people and so engaging these behaviors would oftentimes be frowned upon and then you know, you might risk losing your friendship with people in a guild, and therefore not be able to access content and do the stuff in the game that you want to do. Like, it's important to re- like retain friendships in that game.
0: Well, I mean, that's a good point, and and it leads me to um, what I kind of wanted to say, not next, but after this. So I'm going to switch up the order because sure. uh, y- you're right. Any time you get a large group of people together in an environment like this, it's that's a, mm, special and unique to them. Like I mean, you create a culture. You create your own culture.
1: Yeah.
0: Culture is a very fluid thing. You create a society. You've created rules for your society and your culture. And outcasts will be outcasts through shame and exile when they go against the social, you know, mores. Like that's just a that's just since time immemorial, that's how he, groups of animals have acted. Um, so, so Warcraft had its own culture, yep. has, but it was a different game market. So it had yeah, its own culture for sure. Um, in this paper, this 2007 paper, the authors do a really great job explaining that, expounding upon why we can expect behaviors in the game to line up closely with real life behaviors, even if the stakes and consequences might be um, of a different level. Um, it's all about investment and commitment. Like, yeah. you know, players invest not only their monthly fee. So so just so you're aware, you have to pay... I don't know about back in 2005, but...
1: Absolutely. It's always, okay, been, a it's always been a monthly subscription fee. fee. Mm-hmm.
0: Plus some people, you know, in-game purchases. I didn't know. Again, don't know if that was back a thing then, in I 2005. Think, no. Okay. In this type of game, it's a thing now, but... Um, well, but
1: uh, there has always been... Uh, People who have like farmed up currency and then sold that for real life money to other people. Fair
0: enough. So there, there is this element of investing your money, but I would stress the investment of time and and like you said, and your friendship emotions. And, yeah. Um, I mean, since you played one upon a time, once upon a time, can you attest to like? The average player, what's the weekly hours they are putting in? And, yeah, you know, sure. maybe your higher tier players, what yeah. what hours are they putting into this?
1: So, I mean, that's going to range wildly, but what I would consider to be like a, a casual player. Somebody who at that time would maybe eventually meander their way up to level 60, maybe play a little bit of like level 60 dungeons, but not get into raiding.
0: Mm-hmm.
1: You know, would probably play anywhere between one hour to maybe five or six or seven or eight or nine or ten hours a week. They could even do twenty hours a week and still be at that kind of casual level, um, but somebody who would be at that high end, that right. that rating, uh, and and serious player is it's uh, you know effectively a part time to f- full time job. Um, they're definitely playing more than an hour every day to keep up with quests and uh you know getting materials that they need to support raiding then they're raiding at least two days a week and those are going to be four or five six hour block commitments um and then in between you know they're probably just playing for fun as well so you know i'd put a serious player at the at the 20 to 40 to 60 hour a week range
0: so that's insane to me but moving on (laughs) um so even though the researchers, of course, admit that the resurrection aspect certainly allows for riskier behaviors. Um,
1: yeah, to be clear, your character never permanently dies. They will always come back to life.
0: Yeah. What? So as an aside, is there a penalty for dying?
1: Yeah, when you die. Um, so in the game, a major component is always going on finding like new and better gear. Uh-huh. And a gear has a durability on it. Right. And every time you die, you lose durability. So
0: you and then lose you have your gear.
1: To, no. Uh, oh. You have to go repair it. And repair oh. it um, costs money. money. And the and the better the gear, the more and more and more and more and more money it costs. Okay,
0: so dying costs money.
1: Yeah. And time. And you have to run back to your body. Like, you have when to you, run
0: back to your yeah, body? Yeah, when,
1: when you die you go back to basically like your You're soul like goes back to a graveyard and you have oh. to run a slow run all the way back to your body to resurrect.
0: Do you have to say Ooh. the whole time? Oh man. Yeah. It's a tough Cost So <laughs> um, research into the behavior and emotional involvement of game players and their relationships with their virtual selves characters yeah. Um, has shown that reactions to events in the games can have serious emotional repercussions in your own life. Um, Sherry Turkle, who is a sociologist of MIT, has investigated that kind of relationship between people and their virtual personas. Um, And she said, I mean, it's not that it's not part of your real life just because it's happening on the screen. Um, Quote, it becomes integrated into really what you do every day. And so where you have loss of that part of your life that was involved in the habits and rituals, it's very traumatic and it is play, but it is serious play. Mm-hmm. Like you were working for something for a long time and to be clear, it's not being destroyed, but it's, it's.
1: Hampered, changed, it, hindered.
0: Exactly.
1: Yeah.
0: Um, so, so this kind of like shows you what kind of commitment and dedication people have which is why they're going to show similar behaviors to their real life, mm-hmm. their real life behaviors. Um, something else of note from this paper was the mentions of the quarantine measures and how they just didn't work. Um, there was always non-conformist players and groups that didn't comply yeah. enough of them to keep the pandemic going. Yeah. Um, and the, in 2007, they had written the way that players behaved In such a way that real-life populations might react, we believe this might be a problem for governments trying to lock down during a pandemic or epidemic Um. scenario. (laughs) They were probably right. Yeah. Pfefferman says, we saw some courage, some fear, some suspicion of quarantine. Groups were secretly meeting to talk about quarantines. Like, it was... Um, yeah, quite reflective of what ended up happening. Um, a few other small criticisms. So you may or may not have heard of the term R-naught or R-value during mm-hmm. our current pandemic. You know, the rate basically of which the disease is going to pass itself on, yeah. how contagious the disease is, how many other people are going to be infected from one infectious person. Um, and so one of the criticisms is for this disease, the R-naught was ridiculous. Yeah. Like Instantly transferred. transferred. Like it was, it yeah. was in no way reflective of real life. Um, but like again, in the paper, they're talking about how can we make this applicable in the future? Well, we can make a more realistic disease. We can program in an R naught if we were to try this in an experimental condition.
1: Yeah, yeah. instead of as a Accident. accidental <laughs> condition. Yeah.
0: Um. The, another thing that kind of kept the epidemic pandemic going was this cycle where people were trying to be nice I think by resurrecting weaker players Mm -hmm. just so that they could die again um which of course kept kept the pandemic going um and so people said well that that does not reflect real life that's ridiculous (laughs) like you know once in real life if you get infected by something you and then you were to recover you get immunity of some sort. Right. And so you wouldn't just keep getting it and keep dying. Well, you know what I mean? Keep You wouldn't keep getting it and keep being impacted by it. Correct. Um, I mean, y- yes and no. There's something to be said for the people that clearly do have an immune system which isn't functioning well. Because people have got COVID like four times. Some people get chicken box like four times, even though that seems improbable. It is. It's a really, really, really low chance of happening. But... These part, people of the population are always going to be there. People with compromised immune systems, like that, you know, don't form the right antibodies. So maybe that part of the population was a little overblown, but it is an accurate representation of a group of people. Um. So just, uh, just like to one little additional thing is in this paper, they do talk about, um, you know, modeling this for the future. Um, how can we use these like design scenarios that will help us learn things? And it's not just in epidemiology; it's in economics, politics, psychology, even counterterrorism. So, as I brought up earlier, there is a significant number of players during the pandemic purposely infecting others. Um, one player who was interviewed about his griefing was uh, Robert Allen of the Domus Fulminata Guild who dubbed himself and his guild virtual bioterrorists very proudly. He was pretty proud of himself. Um, he was a level 60 mage at the time and could withstand the virus, but spread it to others who are more vulnerable. And he said that he and his group found the chaos caused by their actions humorous. Quote, it's just funny to watch people run away screaming, he said. Um, so I think he's a jerk, <laughs> but that just kind of gives you insight. They're just how much fun they're having scaring people. And I can think of a lot of Facebook posts I've seen exactly like that for COVID, by the way. But anyways, we're talking about terrorism now. Um, those types of actions are obviously terroristic in nature. Like, guess yeah. is undeniable. Um, he's trying to cause fear and chaos in <laughs> as many people as possible. Like, this is a terrorist thing. Um yale university terrorism expert stuart gottlieb has said um, the advantage obviously goes to asymmetric actors so you know people that are choosing to act counter to societal norms um they can operate under the radar right and (laughs) and some experts like gottlieb think that virtual terrorists blowing themselves up and spreading disease inside of world of warcraft could actually give them insight into you know into real plots um, which would be pretty cool. They could run scenarios themselves because, again, of course, they do have computer modeling. Um, Chris Blair, deputy director of the Center for Terrorism and Intelligence Studies, says they already use computer models, but they don't have the same, again, uh, intelligence elegance yeah. in their algorithms for human behavior. It's hard to model. It's almost impossible so you gotta find like the best possible things like so warcraft has a history of other in-game terrorist activity apparently early on players found a curse in a high-level dungeon that would turn them into a living bomb purposely got infected and then teleport to major cities and detonate themselves
1: yeah
0: and so obviously these (laughs) this is just suicide bombing that's what this is Um, And they began to target areas where a large number of players gathered, auction houses, banks. At one point, the cities were virtually empty because people didn't want to keep getting blown up all the time. Right. So you can use games like this. Uh, Other video games are also interesting to those who study violence and war and terrorism. Um, Examples are Halo and Call of Duty. Really, any game in which it's PvP.
1: Player versus player.
0: uh, Sorry, I should clarify. Yes, player versus player and you have a disparity in resource. It doesn't matter what kind of resource. Yeah. You have a have and a have not group. The haves have more to lose than the have nots. Correct. Um, they the, could be talking about money here. We could be talking about items. Mostly we're talking about something like maybe they have the time to put in and they're really skilled. Yep. High level players don't want to die it'll ruin all their stats. Mm-hmm. So they really have a lot more to lose from dying. Yep. They have not a lower player. Someone that feels like they have nowhere to go in life. They don't really care that much about dying.
1: It also sounds like... And they
0: know that they're not going to do well in these matches.
1: Yeah, sounds like GoldenEye in the proximity mine. Or the time mine.
0: Oh, okay. I can tell that story. We have time, right? Yeah. My younger brother loved to pull the suicide bomb move in GoldenEye, in which he would see you pull the pin on a grenade. No, proximity might no, it was uh it was a grenade, yep. And run straight at you. And so you could try to shoot him and kill him before he got to you, but that was no that was no guarantee. So you either try to run away far enough so you don't get exploded, or you both die in a fiery yeah, fiery death. I never liked it, but my brother thought it was funny and he just didn't really care about dying, and I wanted to not be last place Correct. so um there was that but there's a there's know, a real life example there too. Um, some griefing there anyways so what i'm trying to say is that this is again very applicable to real life and sociological studies of mindsets of gang members and suicide bombers members of terrorist cells is maybe they don't feel like they have a lot to live for maybe all they have is that satisfaction of momentarily halting the progress or goals of the, the have group. Right. Um, maybe they, they think that, you know, they're going to die. Might as well take them with me kind of attitude. And, um, so a lot of these games can actually be decent virtual models. Um, and the conclusion is that we just need to decide how much we can compare the real life behaviors to the virtual behaviors. And Dr. Nina Fefferman and um, Eric Lofgren have written in their paper some mathematical models, which I will not try to share. Just like explaining that for top minds, we could probably come up with an algorithm that would measure a average difference between the amount of behavior that's different from online and real life for each type of game. Mm-hmm. And therefore depending on what the players have to lose, maybe, or something like that. And therefore, we could be running actual experiments. We could be setting up scenarios and letting people do as they wish and and studying these things as a purposeful experiment to study medicine, like I said, economics, politics, so many different things. And there's a lot of potential here.
1: We'll get Charlie Epps right on it.
0: (laughs) I was just thinking about that from numbers. Yeah. That this would be the perfect thing for Charlie Evans to, <laughs> to work on. It would make a great TV episode. Um, in fact, they even had an episode where they had Warcraft, but not Warcraft. Because you know how TV series will have things from real life, but they change the name because it can't be that thing. Yeah. But it was clearly that thing. Yeah. They had an episode about Warcraft. Yeah. Perfect. Any other thoughts to add about World of Warcraft? I'm sorry I keep saying Warcraft. I know it's a different game. Well, that's
1: the thing. you, you so got to be sorry. careful because Warcraft is not what we're talking I'm about. I'm so sorry. It's okay. We'll survive.
0: Do you think everyone's confused now?
1: I suspect not.
0: But. Awesome. Um, that's probably it then for this not week, this Fortnite's episode.
1: Excellent. But not the game, just the time period.
0: I'm going to make a bold prediction that our next episode will be about mythology. Excellent. I don't know which one. Very bold. Will hope I stick to that. Maybe. Unless you don't like mythology, then maybe you will hope I don't stick to that. Excellent. All right, so thank you so much, everyone, for listening to Teach Me Something. Uh, Once again, I'm Melissa.
1: And I'm Everett.
0: And we hope you learned something new.